Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Tomorrow Never Dies, starring Pierce Brosnan, Jonathan Price, Michelle Yeoh, Terry Hatcher, and directed by Roger Spottiswood. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie, the cunning linguist, here because Now Playing Never Dies. <laughs> How did I know you would go for that revolved joke? Man, this one's filled with bad jokes, too. We can pump this movie all we want. I wonder how much that is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) This one I have seen before. This was something that my mom made me do after she got divorced. She was depressed. She was home. She was feeling bad. She turned this on. And I sat through it because I loved her. (laughs) (laughs) Loved in the past tense? (laughs) It tested our relationship, but I still love her, yes. I actually saw this with my mother in the theater. As I mentioned previously, I saw all the James Bonds up into the next one with my mother. So we went to the theater opening weekend to catch this one. And I don't think she's seen it since. (laughs) I've caught it on cable here and there, but she would have watched them once and that's it. It's one of those things that it's Bond. We go to see it. But I don't know if this one was really her cup of tea. And I went and saw this in theaters after GoldenEye again because of Pierce Brosnan. I probably would have seen it anyway, but you throw Terry Hatcher in a movie? Oh, I am so there. I mean, hell, I had bought Tango and Cash for crying out loud. Never mind the fact that she's the perfect breast woman from Seinfeld and the hottest Lois Lane in history. (laughs) More than Margot Kidder? Pshaw! (laughs) And that 50s chick. How did I know you are going to go Tango Cash instantly when you said that? I really liked her in Tango and Cash. I know her from Lois and Clark at this point, and I was very surprised she took the role, honestly. I don't remember them having a name actress as a Bond girl up until this point that I knew of. Right. This was a big get, I do believe. This was like a, wow, she's agreeing to do this movie. Well, no, no, no. At this point, Lois and Clark had gotten married, and I watched every episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, and it's really an amazing story for television ratings. They should have learned their lesson from Moonlighting, another ABC show, but Lois and Clark had tremendous ratings, just a great series with all that romantic tension, the will they or won't they between Lois and Clark, and then the two characters got married and had the highest ratings in the series history. And the 
the very next episode was the lowest ratings in the series history, and it was soon canceled. This was post-marriage. This was Lois and Clark on the decline. This was Terry Hatcher trying to figure out what her career would be post-Lois and Clark. And let's face it, she really didn't have one until Desperate Housewives gave her a renaissance. It's telling that she plays Bond Girl number one and not the one that lives to the end. Yes, I agree. It wasn't as nice a feature for her talent as it could be. Yeah, topless would have been a much better feature for her talents. <laughs> I've already indicated that I didn't think so highly of this movie when I saw it back on its original video release. But I've actually been curious to come back to this one because I think I realize after the fact what they were doing here. On one hand, A, it's very interesting that if the last movie was all about the Cold War, they're looking for a new superpower to be the villain. And the perfect answer to this falls in their lap moving to China. China in 1997 is taking Hong Kong back from the British. They're pirating our movies. They're becoming this force to be reckoned with, the last Cold War empire, if you will, the last communist on the planet. And it makes total sense that Bond would turn his energies here. Plus, they've already been made villains in Hollywood. Richard Gere had already been campaigning for years and years about the way they had treated the Dalai Lama and Tibet. And there were movies about that coming out, like Scorsese's Kundune and Red Corner. And there was even a movie with Jeremy Irons about the handoff of Hong Kong called Chinese Box. This was in the vogue. They were of the moment by tackling China in this way at this time. Actually, Stuart, the original script of this movie was very much just that. They were going to do a topic that very much was in hand, that China was going to get Hong Kong back. But when this movie was going to be released, they had a release date they had to meet because of a stock offering thing with MGM in December of 2007. The transfer had already taken place. So they ditched that idea and went this way. So that was the original intention of the movie. But what I saw here, I didn't see that movie here, Stuart. That's not the movie that we get. Well, I'll go with you. It does feel compromised, and hearing that they had an original plot that got altered makes a whole lot of sense. When we get into the movie, I'll definitely talk about the movie I thought I was seeing as opposed to the one that we actually get. But it is all about a media mogul trying to get into China. The real Bond girl is Chinese, and it would make a lot more sense if it was set in Hong Kong and not the Vietnamese Bay, but I feel like they were headed there, and there is at least an attempt to talk about the rise of communist China here. See, and I didn't take any of that out of this movie. What I saw out of this movie was, once again, James Bond doing what he's done for 20 years at this point, which is following a trend. And again, I mentioned a little bit last time, Jackie Chan had broken into America at that point. He'd had a couple other American hits, Super Cop and Super Cop 2, where there was a female partner to Jackie Chan, played by Michelle Yeoh. And what I saw here was a chance to capitalize on the Kung Fu renaissance that was happening in the mid-90s and a brazen attempt to start a spinoff series starring Wai Lin. Possibly on that spinoff series. That hadn't occurred to me, but I totally agree with you. Yes, part of the ramifications of China taking over Hong Kong is all the people that are working in Hong Kong are looking for somewhere else to work. And yeah, they came to Hollywood. Jackie Chan, Michelle Yeoh, all the directors, John Woo, Sue Hark, you name it, Ringo Lam, they all came to Hollywood. And yes, I think that Hollywood was ready to embrace them and that this was as much an embrace of 
Hong Kong cinema as Man with the Golden Gun was an attempt to do karate back in the 70s. Well, it's not just my speculation. I remember reading interviews with the producers at that time where they talked about they had an entire series of spy movies planned for Michelle Yeoh. Obviously, those never materialized. But yeah, this was a huge attempt to bring her in and then spin her off so they could have a parallel spy series. They'd already thought about going Jane Bond with Sharon Stone before Pierce got the role. So now they're looking at other ways that they could capitalize on a female spy craze. Perhaps they should fix the movie first. But before we can talk about that, you need to give them the plot, or what there is of a plot. When a British frigate sails into Chinese water, the Chinese take note and hostilities begin to break out. But an unknown missile drills into and sinks the British warship. The ship was in Chinese waters, but never should have been, so MI6 sends James Bond to investigate. Their main lead, media mogul Elliot Carver. Head of the Carver Media Group Network, a new news channel that reported first on the boat sinking, labeling it a Chinese attack. Bond knows Carver's wife, biblically. So he talks to her, sleeps with her, and discovers Carver is creating news so he can have the scoop and report it first. He reprogrammed the frigate's navigation system so the British thought they were on course when in fact they drifted into Chinese waters, and Carver plans to orchestrate a war between the Chinese and the British in order to aid his media empire. Carver kills his adulterous wife and then puts out a hit on Bond. But Bond is not the only one investigating Carver. The Chinese sent their own agent, Wai Lin, played by Michelle Yeoh, to investigate. The two eventually team up and find Carver's stealth ship and board it to stop Carver from firing a stolen British missile at Beijing. In the fight, Carver and his people are killed, and Bond and Wei Lin barely escape the exploding ship as credits roll. Well, Stuart, you mentioned a second ago that maybe they should have worked on the script a little bit. A little piece of trivia that I think I might want to get out here now is that because of this whole rigmarole about the release date and the realized the script would be completely dated once it came out, they went into production without a finished script. And they went into production without Terry Hatcher or Jonathan Price cast. And if that doesn't speak volumes, knowing that, or explain a lot of what you were watching or what you referred to, Stuart, I don't know what will. Clearly, it is something that was cobbled together, and it's amazing it came out as well as it did, if you know that. I don't know. There's several movies that start without completed scripts and actually come together because they have good action set pieces, they have outlines, and they just need some final refinement. This is not one of those cases. <laughs> I would put this far more in the Lethal Weapon 4 category than the Iron Man category, but it's not always a detriment. It's not always final draft of your script when you start shooting. Effects take time. Stunts take time. If you know you're going to have these set pieces, you can put a good story between them. But yeah, here... I mentioned last time how I felt the story was so cohesive and so straightforward, a little rote, but at least it didn't feel smushed together like some of those other ones. This one felt downright schizophrenic. It really just didn't have an even tone. It's not even the plot that struck me. It's that it just seemed all over the place. And very uncreative. I would say that most of the things that it offers here are stuff that they've done two, three, ten times before. Truly, it was reaching back into what works and just pulling it out of the mothballs again. Case in point, the start of this thing, we're back in Russia? Really? I thought that was the last movie. <laughs> For an action scene that's full of action and explosions and things, I couldn't care less what was going on. 
I couldn't believe I was watching a James Bond movie, and this is the opening. This is the best they can come up with to open this movie, was a action scene I've seen in a lot of other movies that aren't James Bond movies. So I don't find any of this creative at all. I can't even tell you what they've done in other Bond movies that's in this opening scene. I actually like this opening scene. I'm a fan of Top Gun. I like jet fights. Mm -hmm. I like that it's James Bond risking his life because the suits back in the office decided to fire a missile at a place that already had nukes. I like the little trick of the guy in the back seat who wakes up and starts to strangle him. And I like the end joke where he ejects that guy and he goes into another plane. It was fun, exciting. It was a great thing to, while people are still getting settled in their seats in the theater and getting their attention focused on the movie and worrying less about their popcorn, their sodas, and where they're putting their coat. It was a nice start. Certainly not one of the top ten, but... I have no complaints about it either. I am not dinging the movie for uncreative action, although it's not anything new. What I'm saying is it was disappointing for me to have a scene that felt like it was cut from the last movie here. I was done with USSR, Cold War kind of stuff. I wanted to see something new here. This scene didn't really give me that. This scene felt like any scene we would have seen with Bond riding around in the tank in the last movie here. Just by its sheer location, the cast of characters, everything about it. As an action scene, it's okay. It's neither the best nor the worst, but it didn't breathe new life. I'm wondering at this point, if the last movie was a question about where's Bond going to go not that the Iron Curtain has fallen, this is not providing easy answers. Well, I agree with Arnie that the last joke of it with the ejection seat's a lot of fun. Absolutely. But... You have Bond going back and forth with the missile and back to M and then back to Bond, back and forth, bum, bum, bum. The way this thing is edited is frenetic and it drives me nuts. I don't see James Bond on a mission here like we normally do when James Bond's left to his own devices to get himself out of something. We're in the middle of a mission, fine, but with the people back home watching what he's doing, the whole thing, that doesn't work for me at all. And it's a big, giant action scene that doesn't feel at all like James Bond. It has no subtlety to it at all. It's all boom, 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 boom. Yes, the last stunt is lots of fun. His comment about backseat drivers, where do you want me to park your missiles? That's really funny. It's entertaining. But when you have to cut back to Judy Dench and he says, what is he doing? His job. And then boom, right to an explosion. That gets me as it's not James Bond feeling. Maybe that's why I like it. Maybe it's because, like I said last time, it's John McClane as a British guy. Well, I will say this. I observed, and I'm going to say, without actually having done the math, I'm going to make the claim that I bet this is the movie that drops the classic James Bond theme the most. And the reason why they do it is because they know they don't have a James Bond movie here, and they're layering it on to try and make you feel like they've got one just like one of the old good ones. It's just one of the brazen attempts to try to make this film feel of the piece with what they've done before. Stuart, remember I said last time they dropped the James Bond theme in during the tank, right? Yeah. And then a couple episodes ago with Arnie, I said sometimes use James Bond theme too much in a movie. This is exactly what I was referring to. I remembered that the last time I watched this movie, two times ago I watched this movie, right? So what I did this time was I kept a tally of how many times James Bond theme was played. Oh, awesome. It was 13 times that I counted. I knew it would be double digits. I knew it was double digits. That's awesome, Brock. Thank you for doing that. But not just when he's doing something like Indiana Jonesy when he has a James Bond moment. It's when he's driving the BMW into MI6. It's when he gets out of his car to meet Q at the Hertz station or whatever, the Avis station, whatever. It comes in at the most obscure times. Yes. It doesn't make any sense why they use it so much. 
Oh, it makes sense, Brock. It makes sense because they know that what they would be offering if they were showing it without that music would be so remote from Bond. It just wouldn't be a Bond movie. And since we're on the subject of themes and music, what do you guys think about this one? I have got to say that Tomorrow Never Dies has two themes, and I am very polarized about the one offered here in the opening credits. On one hand, I actually love the song. I think the song is great. It would rank in the top 10. I think it's very, very catchy. I think the musical performance of this song sends it spiraling down to one of the worst themes offered. Cheryl Crow's voice is like a hornet in my earlobe. I cannot understand why she sings songs that are not in her vocal range. But consistently, when you look at her pop songs, not a damn one of them can she actually hit the high notes in, and that's never stopped her from trying. I love Cheryl Crow. I have, I think, all of her albums. Maybe she's come out with a couple of recent ones I skipped. I like all the hits. I like her duet with Kid Rock. This song's painful. <laughs> this song is really, really painful. And you're right. The orchestration of it, the tone of it, the music of it is not bad. I love it. But wow, that breathy bar song kind of... I mean, this is like 2 a.m. at the karaoke bar closing time, cat mewling. This is the <laughs> kind of stuff you would expect as people are being kicked out of the bar to sound like. <laughs> I think if you're playing this, they'll leave. You don't have to kick them out. But <laughs> here's how bad I think it is, is because I really was sitting there and I'm like, all right, who did Bond themes? I know Madonna did one for Brosnan. Garbage got in here somewhere. And I'm listening to this. I'm like, who the hell is this? And again, I have all her albums. I still didn't know. I couldn't believe that she did a song this bad. Now, admittedly, I don't listen to some of the bad ones that often, but wow, this one really does stink. Now, I have to tell you that I am right up there with you, and I'm so glad you both said that because I thought I was going to be the only person who didn't like this song. I hate this song. I don't even care for the orchestrations in it because I can't stand the vocal performance so much. But you said there were two songs. The one at the end of this movie, the Katie Lang song, was up to, like, two months or maybe a month before the movie came out, the theme song of the movie. They had a contest for Bond songs, and because Cheryl Crow was a bigger star at the time, they bumped Katie Lang's song to the back and put hers up front to try to get a top 40 hit. And if you notice some of the orchestrations later in the movie, they reference the Katie Lang song. Mm -hmm. They don't even reference this one in the themes. So clearly that's the case. I think you could have fixed this problem by having Katie Lang sing this opening song. I actually think I would love this song if Katie Lang was singing it because she has an amazing voice. My problem with the end song is I don't really like it. I feel like it's really over the top with the wah, 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 wah. Bond has never been big band 1940s. I don't know where they're coming off on that. I saw in that Bond music documentary that they were kind of going for that swing dance craze kind of sound here. But I don't feel like that is Bond. Just because it's got an orchestra doesn't make it Bondian to me. So they end up with two loser songs for the price of one movie because they have the wrong singer singing the good song and the good singer trapped in this corny-ass surrender song. I don't like either one of them. 
I'm not a huge Katie Lang fan. I have none of her albums. I enjoy Constant Craving. That's probably the end of it. I don't like this end song, but I thought you would, Stuart, because I'd put this right up there with just about any of the Connery Bond songs. It has the flavor to me of the songs I didn't like. I agree completely with Arnie. This thing is completely Shirley Bassey. This is supposed to be all the big horns. It sounds like an homage to the Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever stuff. I thought you could eat this up with a spoon. The fact that Katie Lane can sing so well, I had no idea. I don't know anything of her music. I was very impressed with the vocal pipe she has in this last song, which is why I like it more than the first one. But I thought, Stuart, you were going to be all over that thing. I'm very surprised to hear you say that. Me too. I thought you'd have this in your top five. No, no. I just, I don't think it's a good song. I don't think it's very Shirley Bassey. Shirley Bassey's song sounded like the 50s, and this song sounds like the 1940s to me. It's not right. It's just not right. But it is a better song. Ultimately, if I have to listen to one, I'll go with Surrender because it's sung well. And I do like Katie Lang's voice. There's another factor I'm going to call out, an elephant in the room. They did not want a butch lesbian singing the Bond theme. Sheryl Crow is very photogenic. Yes, sells a lot more albums, is a lot more popular. I just don't think that they wanted to make this singer their Bond girl for this theme. And it's to the detriment of the movie. Speaking of detriments to the movie, after the opening scene, we get a whole bunch of the villain's plot. We don't see James Bond from the afterburner breaking the glass of the screen until 15 minutes later when he's in Holland or wherever he is. 15 minutes without James Bond in a James Bond movie. It seemed like an eternity until Brosnan got back on the screen for me. And this also kind of took me back to the earlier Bond films where this exact same thing happened, a boat sank. Spy who loved me for your eyes only. How many times have we got to see a ship sink? I'm so tired of it. <laughs> Thunderball. How many things are going to go down in the ocean? <laughs> With James Bond, all of the female ones. <laughs> Couldn't be more lazy. And of course, well, who's doing it but a big blonde henchman guy i'm like this couldn't be more stale here i thought this was supposed to be the bond for the new decade and they are just grabbing cliches like we won't notice well it is for the new decade because the plot here is not world domination it's ratings domination but yeah a boat sinking we have seen this countless times before and the blonde henchman seen him dozens of times before I thought the missile with the drill on it was fairly inventive. I can't recall seeing it before this point, and it's a thing I've seen in science fiction and action films since. Sure. Arnie, I actually think this movie is about world domination, but a different way to go about it. And I don't think the movie really works in that plot. I don't really care, but I very much think it's about the modern world domination. Yes. I hear what you guys are going with. When we find out why this ship sank, it isn't because they're going to steal nukes from it or get a weapon or a device that's going to give them power. It's the mere ability to report that it sank. First, before the British even know that their ship has sunk, Elliot Carver is printing it in his tabloids and fanning the yellow journalism that will lead England in a war with China. That is what's going on here. That's the power play. And the villain this time, it's not the Chinese, it's the media. A very 90s villain. Something we saw a lot of in both reality and in the movies in the 1990s. Natural Born Killers to OJ's trial. We had a lot of coverage of exploitative tabloid journalism. Yeah, and at this point, it felt like too easy of a target, truthfully. 
it just was a little bit lazy. But what I noticed this time specifically, and I did not notice when I saw this in theaters a decade and a half ago, is this villain, Carver. I was not an Apple fan in the 90s. I don't know that anybody was an Apple fan in the 90s. It was pre-iPod. Their sales were in the toilet. But did Steve Jobs see this movie and go, yes, that's my persona? Because every Steve Jobs Apple keynote speech is Carver, dressed in black, head to toe, the tight glasses, the short cropped hair, the big screen behind him with all of the visual imagery. It really felt like Carver was about to announce the iPhone 5. And indeed, they do have a throwaway line about how he's going to release software that has a million bugs that'll force people to have to buy patches. Oh, that's Microsoft, not Apple. Right, yeah, exactly. But my point is, yes, there's a little bit of that kind of Silicon Valley titan in this character, but this character is not Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or any of those people. But truthfully, this was the other reason I was interested in coming back to Tomorrow Never Dies. Not because I thought I missed some great plot twist, but because back in 1997, I couldn't have told you who Rupert Murdoch was. At the time, I thought it was outrageous that they would have us believe that there was a character who invented the news so that he could be the first to report it. That was complete fiction, right? Well, funny how when we flash forward to 2012 and the hacking scandals that have rocked Murdoch's whole journalism empire, how much this looks like real life now. How Rebecca Brooks and his whole newspaper empire has been taken down by doing these exact things. How David Cameron's parliament is wrapped up in it. All the things that they're professing that Carver is doing are things that have been alleged and with some degree of evidence against Rupert Murdoch. I did not know that they were creating such a savage attack on a real-life media titan. And so coming back to it, I was curious to see, well, how are they going to do this? That doesn't feel like a Bond thing to me. It's the element of this that makes it feel the most unique, is that they've gone after such a real-life character in such a vicious way. Well, I felt back then it was more of a satire, and now it seems... What you're saying is it's become a little more evident. I'm not up on my work at Murdoch. It seems like it's a satire of him where people like him. And the way that Price is playing it so big, it kind of does fit in the Bond villain sense in that sense. Like you have a Stromberg, for example, who it's kind of similar that has a grand idea of a plan and wants to go about it in his own way and kill a lot of people to get what he wants kind of thing. Very Bondian in that way. They just never have a guide use the media before and they kind of have a little fun with the idea of that as opposed to a guy stealing a nuclear missile for ransom. The comparisons are even more direct though. Rupert Murdoch was actively engaging in trying to break into China with Star Television. It was the one place in the world where his empire did not reach because the government is so controlling about information that gets exchanged. He tried like hell to break in there. In fact, it took him well over a decade and he never did and finally caved two years ago. He got a wife out of it, but he never got his Chinese media empire here. They're going after him. This is an attack on Rupert Murdoch specifically. And that's what I thought was very curious is we've seen people that look like fictionalized versions of real life figures, but we've never seen such an explicit attack on a real life person before. That said, it does not work as a Bond villain. I've got to say, I don't understand how this is something that Brosnan can be useful in fighting. Propaganda? This is not something that Bond has the equipment to take down. Well, that's why they have to give it a specific plot. He's not just 
manufacturing news. He's manufacturing a war, a war that impacts Britain, and that is right up Bond's wheelhouse. Yeah, I agree. They find a way to get Bond in there. He's basically like Spectre, how Spectre pitted East versus West. This is how this guy is going to do it. He's going to get his war that will allow him to break into the China business. And if people die in the meantime, well, oh, well, at least he gets to conquer the world his way. Yeah, with a stealth ship. How does that work? It doesn't work because they actually (laughs) tried it. And what you find on a radar is a big part of the ocean missing. So, you know, the whole point is that not to be on radar, well, you have a big gap of ocean missing on a radar. It tells you where you are. <laughs> My favorite line in this whole movie is M at the climax of this going, we're looking for an invisible ship. I just, I, I laugh at that. That's just, it's just funny. Well, good luck with that. Okay. Ask Wonder Woman to find it in her jet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not liking anything here. I'm not liking the villain. I'm not liking his henchmen. I'm not really getting how the satire is marrying with the Bondian things. And then you have all these problems with the script where just things take forever to happen. It's like Bond is moving in molasses. When is something going to happen in this movie? I swear to God, it's 40 minutes of him attending a party and chatting up an old flame. Well, you say that, but I'm still enjoying the performances here. I'm still enjoying Brosnan as Bond. I'm enjoying the updating again of him still being the dinosaur. There's the money penny M joke. Don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, but I like Brosnan in this movie as well, and I like him in these early scenes. But the lines they're giving money penny and M are completely wrong. The, the stuff in the car when he gets briefed about pumping for information. Judy Dench says it so obviously, so unlike Judy Dench. Samantha Bond says the same thing, how much you want to pump her. They kill the joke after that. Some of these jokes are in comments by M are just completely out of character, especially based on the character we saw in the last movie. I actually think all of the jokes here are really, really bad. You're saying you're enjoying some of them. I don't. I think they're groaners. I think they're howlers. I think that it undermines what they set up with the last movie. Movie. The guy that you described that you liked the last movie is not here in this movie. And these bad jokes and this lame setup is a big reason why Brosnan can't work for me in this film. I'm glad that I got to see Goldeneye and can see what he can do. Maybe if I didn't have this movie in my head, I wouldn't have judged his performance so harshly as I did in the last film. But it's, I think, this film that got me to label him as the stand-in, the Bond and drag persona. Because he's just going through it here. I do not see the tough guy. I don't see Connery, Moore, or Dalton in this performance. I see someone floundering. I disagree. I really like him. One of the scenes I really like with him is the scene where Q gives him that really awesome car. And he just takes the little iPhone-like control years before the iPhone. And Q can't even drive it because old people can't drive. Haha. And Bond takes it and just drives like a madman and controls it absolutely perfectly. I see self-assurance. I see swagger. And I love it. When he goes to that nightclub and picks back up with his old flame, who is now married to somebody else, but that doesn't even slow him down. I think the scene with Paris is great. Terry Hatcher doesn't help the scene, but what they're doing there and with the character of Paris with Bond, the idea, is wonderful, and I think Brosnan plays it well. Unfortunately, again, Hatcher doesn't play it well with him the scene with Vincent Scavelli later on I think Brosnan came to play I think in the action scenes with the cars is great I think Brosnan very much is present here the script is letting him down and I think he's doing everything he can to make Bond real in this movie as real as he can it's not him it's the script Stuart 
No, I think I'm saying that, but when this is your first introduction to what Brosnan is doing, it's easy to say, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Having seen Goldeneye, I can see how much better he can be. In this circumstance, again, stand by, he's floundering. I'm glad I'm hearing that you guys think Terry Hatcher is awful. Awful is the word I would use to describe this repartee she has with Brosnan. It's terrible chemistry. You know what, though? I feel really bad for her. I really, truly do, because, first of all, her TV show was in the toilet. She gets this role. She takes this role, not because she wants to. She knows this role is crap. Whatever's written on paper is no good. She does it to keep her husband interested because he wants to be married to a Bond girl, and yet they still divorce a handful of years later after she has his baby. Who's the ex-husband? John Tenney. Okay. Bit actor, been in Beverly Hills Cop 3 and a handful of other things. Does a lot of TV. I read that on IMDb and I was really shocked that she actually came out and said that. I mean, like, why would she admit that? The only reason she did it because for her husband. Is that supposed to be sweet? <laughs> it's like, why would you admit to that? And the thing is, most husbands would just like to date the girl with perfect breasts, Bond girl or not. How about Lois Lane, for God's sake? Isn't Lois Lane good enough for you? You have to have a Bond girl? I go back to Margot Kidder and say no. Uh, okay. But... Yeah, she is just miserable in this. I hope Bond had a good time with his one night in Paris, because I did not. Whatever we think about what a schmuck her ex-husband is, I'm not giving Terry Hatcher a pass for this lame performance. You're saying that you're enjoying something about this, but I can't imagine what, because what's happening in this thing? For whatever reason, Paris is not telling her husband, who is the media tycoon, Elliot Carver, she's not telling him that she knows Bond is a spy. But she's already figured out that Bond is a spy here to investigate her husband. This should be a tense moment. This should be a sexy interplay. We should care about these exchanges. We don't. What I like about it, Stuart, is that Bond had a girlfriend. Not a one-night stand, not a girl from a movie. They're setting it up that this woman meant something to this man. And there's a history, and that's what I'm liking. Remember I said before in the last podcast that every Brosnan movie, they try to make an emotional connection for Bond. Here is where they're doing it. It doesn't work because of the performance, but I love the idea of the character of Paris Carp. Unfortunately, it gets really creepy because when he finds her dead body, he like nuzzles her in this necrophiliac way that makes me very uncomfortable. Just wait till the next movie. Oh, God, it gets worse. <laughs> I was singing Cold Ethel during the scene. But I think part of it is not Terry Hatcher's fault. Part of it is, but part of it is that during the same time, we're not even allowed to enjoy Bond Girl number one, because during the same time, we're already introduced to Bond Girl number two, Michelle Yeoh, who, action star, yes. Kick-ass, yes. Attractive Bond Girl, she's in my bottom five. <laughs> She's got a different kind of beauty. She's not an exotic allure. I think she has charisma when she gets to do her martial arts, when she gets to show off what she's got. She's got screen presence, is what I'm going to say. She has no chemistry with Bond. And yes, she's not a model. She's not here to be ogled. She's here to show off the Hong Kong karate fighting skills that she has. The problem is, even though she's the best thing in the movie, she cannot karate chop through this bad script. I'm with you there. I didn't care for the chemistry at all with Bond. I thought she had some wonderful moments. And I like that when her and Bond were in the action scenes together, that I felt they both could hold their own. But the chemistry when they were doing the dialogue is just not there. I think another part of the problem we should call out is the director for this. If you want to go for Hong Kong style, why didn't they get John Woo? Why didn't they get someone that knows how to do these fight stunt action scenes? Roger Spottis word did Turner and Hooch. <laughs> What are they thinking here? They approached Wu for Goldeneye. 
Oh, really? And he turned them down. But they didn't go back to him for this. Oh, well, he was off making face-off, I think. But this is perfectly suited for his talents. It would have been a wonderful, natural fit that would have helped the martial arts scenes. It would have just made the action scenes, which are few and far between here, much better. They put the slow motion in here for you. Don't doves, but slow mo. (laughs) They sure do. And they give Bond a lot of guns. I mean, he goes from the Walter PPK to a bunch of automatic weapons. This is the problem, I think, with this film and Brosnan in it, is by putting in someone who's a really good martial artist, it really shows that Brosnan is an actor who can stand there and pull a trigger, but can't keep up with the physical fisticuffs. Hey, I'm glad you said it, because that's what I've been thinking. Even in the last one, I wasn't convinced that Brosnan was doing most of that fight work. Doesn't matter. I mean, Roger Moore didn't do most of that fight work. But yeah, it really shows up here when he's put next to someone that can do that physical stuff. And I think the contrast is meant to be that. She does martial arts, he fires a machine gun. The problem is, I don't really like watching Bond run around with a machine gun. I think that this might have been a carryover from that GoldenEye video game. That game is just nothing but running down hallways firing guns. I think they thought, well, if that's a hit, why don't we do it in the movie? But it just doesn't work. Well, the GoldenEye video game came out the same year as this movie, so they weren't basing this off his success. But I agree with you that it is a detriment to Bond that they are showcasing Wei Lin so much, again, with their eye on a sequel. It's like Carver himself is ruining this movie. Worried more about the media empire and the spinoffs and the franchises and not with the movie they're making. Again, they had that release date they had to make because of the new owners of the company. So this is the first Bond movie that they were really under the gun to get made and not do it their way. The whole thing was compromised, Arnie. So you're really on to something there. Ironically, that release date was to open up against Titanic, by the way. Oops. Oh, well, they both (laughs) did okay, I guess. That said... It's not like there's no fun to be had. When Bond comes in and sees Paris's dead body, we get what may be my favorite scene of the movie with one of my favorite character actors, Vincent Schiavelli. I know him from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He's the crazy ghosting ghost. He was one of the circus gang in Batman Returns, if you remember him, Stuart. The organ grinder, sure. The lecherous professor in Better Off Dead. I'm always happy to see this guy. He was in Lord of Illusions with Famke Jensen. He's here as the doctor who is going to torture and kill Bond. But then is quickly offed in a pseudo-comedic way. I don't get this as a villain. I don't understand it, what they're going for. Tone-wise, this is another schism between serious and comedic that just doesn't play to me. When I see Vincent Chiavelli, I usually anticipate comedic. So what he was doing here where he's like, this is very embarrassing, but I have to ask you to open your car before I kill you. I thought that was amusing. I also really like the fact that they're playing the videotape. Yes, VHS. I had to laugh. Of the news story they're going to say that said Paris Carver was found dead with an unidentified man who died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. James makes that happen by shooting Dr. Kaufman in the head with his own gun, making it look like a suicide. They can still run the news story. I didn't mind Chevelli in this scene, but I agree with Stuart. Tonally, it's all over the place. I thought his performance was fun. I thought Brosnan with him was fun to watch as well, but it just didn't fit in this movie at all. This weird kind of quirky doctor guy with these funny lines why not just shoot him in the head and forget about all this histrionautics about how awesome he is as a killer just kill him but it also is setting up a fatherly relationship later on so that the goon stamper 
has a reason for revenge against Bond. Which is completely unneeded for the movie. Yes, exactly. That's all theoretical. If we cared about any of them, that would be amazing, but we don't, so it's schematic. There's only one action scene in this entire thing that works for me. I think it's the action scene of the movie. The chopper going through the market, the on the bike handcuffed, kind of escape stuff. That's the one part where I really feel like both Brosnan and Yo do their best with what's been given. And it's exciting, but boy, it is just a desert to get to that. It is just walking miles and miles of just nothing to get to that one moment. I disagree. I think the scene that, for me, that's most fun to watch is the car, the remote control car. I love that scene with the parking lot. I love Brosnan's reactions when he's in the back seat smiling. The missile going through the window is fun. The entire sequence in the parking garage is my favorite action scene in the movie. I think the helicopter is certainly more visually impressive. I would put that helicopter right up there with the tank from last film. But I also agree with Brock. I really love the car chase. It doesn't quite work for me that Brosnan isn't completely driving. He's doing it all by remote control. It's almost a metaphor for the film. (laughs) Brosnan doing everything by remote control. But it's an exciting scene. It's a lot of fun. I don't understand why when the car is at a standstill, they're shooting it. They're doing everything. It's impervious. When the car is moving, they shoot it and the windshield breaks. Okay, that's convenient. But yeah, I like both of those action scenes. And while the plot is thin and I really want Carver to step up and be a better villain, I am enjoying the action I'm getting. And I get something in this movie no Bond film has ever given me before. An underwater scene I love. (laughs) When they go to that boat and the they are become trapped in the room and the only way out is through this one tunnel and they have to take off their scuba gear and they are in this room, my chest gets tight. I have a, what I consider to be perfectly natural fear of drowning. (laughs) And when I see people underwater in movies, I really worry about them breathing. I have this subconscious thing where I'll hold my breath to see if they could possibly live that long. And when they're taking off that gear, I'm like, no, 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 what's going to happen? It's a mercifully short scenes of underwater. Thank God there's no never say never again shark scene with the point of view cam. But the boldness to take off your scuba gear and swim down that pipe had me. I thought it was the hole that the drill made. I didn't think it was a pipe, but... I had no clue what it really was. Oh, I thought they went through there. But I was thinking the whole time, and I think we might have talked about this in a previous Bond movie, the bends. How deep is the boat sunk that they can go up that fast without getting compression problems in their legs? And hypothermia. Logistics aside, I just don't think that any of these things are that exciting. Or maybe I would think they're exciting if I were engaged. I know I am not engaged in this movie. I am checked out. Like Never Say Never Again, I am just waiting for the counter to roll out on this one. I'm bored. You guys aren't bored? Not in the least. Oh, I was bored, but not every moment. I like the scene that you talked about in the market, and I like the car scene. So here and there, I'm getting enough to keep me going. But the overall plot, I don't care. The villain isn't entirely working for me. I just don't get it enough. But there is enough constant action going on from the 30-minute mark to the 90-minute mark that, no, this movie doesn't give me a chance to get bored. The only time this movie really starts to fall apart is in that last half hour where Waylin and James Bond are supposed to be equals and... They go and he sees her Q gadgets. We don't get a real proper Q scene here because half of it's spent with her Q gadgets. And again, I feel they're setting her up at the detriment of Bond. It hurts the last quarter of this movie. But the first three quarters are as 
entertaining as the majority of the good Bonds. Okay, well, we're not going to agree on that. Well, you mentioned the end, Arnie, that the last 30 minutes it falls apart for you. I'm right there with you when they get to the stealth ship and they try to break in. I think I'm really more on the page of where Stuart is. That these action scenes, while they're all over and they're full of stuff, they're not interesting to me because I'm not invested in the movie. Even the Halo jump, which is a cool idea and a concept and a, what a beautiful visual is we get during that. I just don't care about what's going on enough to really care that it's a cool thing to watch. And when we get to the boat at the end and the whole thing with Waylon and him going in separate directions and they off all the villains and things, it felt very pedestrian to me. And I don't want to feel that way at the end of a Bond movie. I agree. This last half hour was the first time in this entire movie I checked the timer to go, how much more is there? Because the entire thing on the stealth ship, I don't feel the villain works. I don't feel the henchman works. I don't feel Waylon works. I don't buy her chemistry with Bond. The movie has just completely fallen apart. Tomorrow Never Dies, but this movie did. I think it's really key to the fact that we haven't cared about what Elliot wants. That is the reason why nothing that's going on in these endings matters. Elliot gets killed by the drill. We should be on our feet cheering, but I don't care. And throwing in a bad pun like breaking news and all of that. It's making an uninteresting conflict that much worse by weighing it down with bad puns and jokes. Nothing here works. We don't want Bond to get together with this girl. We don't care about Carver's media empire and breaking into China. This is the very definition of boredom. Maybe you guys can explain to me, because I'm not even necessarily sure that I see Carver's long-term goal. I get the short-term goal that his new empire and tomorrow his newspaper and everything get to reign because he's creating the news and thus can scoop it. But what's going to end up happening is a real war that then he's going to not have the contacts being a new news station that the established media has. I don't see how a war benefits him any more than anybody else. It's only these initial bits where he's going to have exclusive information. He actually picks up that he gets exclusive broadcasting rights for a hundred years in China if this war is started. That's how he gets the money. Okay. Yeah, they're trying to say that it's worth whatever loss of readership he has in the rest of this world when everyone gets nuked if he can get in on some of that China yen. Stamper's death is as unmemorable to me as the drill one with Carver. I can't believe he can't dodge a drill. That's just me. But Stamper's death is, I can't even tell you how he died. I watched it yesterday. How did he die? I think it's a pun. Stamper, his foot gets stuck. He can't stamp. And he gets stuck. He goes down with the boat. The boat explodes. The two, like, go underneath the water. Like, that's going to protect them. Bond gives her an oxygen kiss. It's all kinds of terrible here. But I didn't care about Stamper when he was alive. I'm not going to cry when he goes down. He's the most bland of all the henchmen. They need to get rid of those blonde hair dyes. Just stop with the blonde henchmen. Yeah, he's meant to make us think of Red Grant, and he's a pale comparison to him. Or Dolph Lundgren. Well, Dolph Lundgren was in it for one second. I'm just thinking in cinema, not in Bond. Oh. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Tomorrow Never Dies? Stuart. This is the worst Eon production since Diamonds Are Forever. This is a truly terrible Bond. There have been very few truly terrible Bond movies, but this is one of the two Eon ones where I just really feel like they got everything wrong here. Nothing works. Even Michelle Yeoh, which is the best component of this, and I might have enjoyed a spinoff with her, 
she doesn't have any relationship with this franchise. She doesn't help the Bond movie. She makes you wish you were watching a Hong Kong movie. And I just don't feel like they had the script. I know that they know they don't have the script. And they try to get by on these sloppy action scenes that just don't work for me. It's like downing three gallons of flat soda. I can't stand that I have to drink so much of something that's so unenjoyable when there's no nutritional value to it. It's just the worst kind of movie for me. A strong not recommend. Arnie. Stuart, you've said all of that as if it was unequivocal fact. I disagree. This movie is a far step down from GoldenEye, which is disappointing because GoldenEye really gave me a shot of adrenaline I needed to get through to the end of this Bond series. <laughs> but maybe I'm coasting on a bit of goodwill from GoldenEye, but this to me is still a very recommendable Bond film, and I'm going to give it a recommend. The script is a little weak, the villain is a little weak, but I'm still enjoying the performances, save Terry Hatcher. I even enjoy the villain's performances, even though I just don't think their plot is very good. I am enjoying a lot of the action scenes. Not one action scene, not just the helicopter action scene, a ton of the action scenes. In fact, the only thing I don't really enjoy is the last half hour. That's the only part of this movie that really turns me off. And it's a very short bit. It's just the action scene where everything is just explosions anyway and pretty mind-numbing. I'm giving this a weak recommend. I'm still going with them. I'm not totally shocked. You did recommend Diamonds Are Forever, the other one that I called terrible here. I think that it's an apt comparison. I get it. Plus, you're a Brosnan sucker. I just felt like he went down with the ship on this one. I'm a big fan of Pierce Brosnan in this role, and I think he did everything he possibly could in this role to save this movie. I don't blame Pierce Brosnan at all as James Bond in this movie. I think he came to this movie. Unfortunately, he could not lift it up to where we needed it to. Tomorrow Never Dies is the first James Bond movie that I remember seeing in the theater that I came out not liking it. And that was hard for me. I always went in there and enjoyed my Bonds. But I remember specifically in 1997 thinking, wow, what a letdown that was. And that's hard. I like this James Bond. I like James Bond as a whole. And I still don't like this movie. If this movie's on TV, I turn it on to see if it's at the car scene. If it's at the car scene or near the car scene, I'll watch it and then I'll turn it off. I wouldn't even watch the helicopter scene. I don't care enough because there's too much there that I don't really like. So I also had a problem with meta knowledge in this one. I know Jonathan Price from a show he did on Broadway called Miss Saigon. And so when he was in Saigon in this one, I couldn't stop thinking about that. And every time I watch the movie, that gets in my way because the character isn't engaging me as a different character. Completely different from the character in the other show, but regardless. There are things in this movie I don't get. I don't get why we have a Thai hooker for a second. Why even bother having that in the scene? Why do we have such a great idea of a character that Bond has a history with, but yet have terrible dialogue and terrible delivered dialogue there? Couldn't they find somebody else to do it? There's so many choices this movie makes that boggle my mind. So I want to be very clear about this. It's a strong not recommend. It hurts that this movie tries to get away with so much and it just completely fails. Not recommend. Is this the first time I've recommended and both of you haven't? No, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm telling you, it's the same experience. <laughs> this is the one that I think that it's closest resembling to our Diamonds Are Forever experience. Two strong not recommends and one I thought it was fun mess. But you know, there's parts of Diamonds Are Forever I was right there with Arnie. I'm not really near Arnie here except with the Brosnan love. I just think that this one has less to offer than Diamonds Are Forever. Ironically, Rupert Murdoch gets the last laugh. They make this scathing portrait of him, but MGM ends up having to sell their DVD catalog to Fox. 
And so now if you want to buy a copy of this movie, you're buying it from Rupert. <laughs> I'm sure he'd give this one back if he could. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it's the last one that he puts out on the shelf. So if you enjoy this podcast, again, please go to our forums and let us know. If you agree or disagree with our opinions, we want to hear what you have to say. So let us know. You can also go to Facebook and join the conversation. And please go to iTunes and leave us a positive review there so other listeners like yourself can find us and listen to our shows as well. And don't forget, our Living Dead retrospective silver and gold donation drives were extended due to Hurricane Sandy and some listeners writing in, asking us to do just that. So those are extended until November 15th. And then our Platinum 5th Anniversary DVD, where you can hear everything, is until November 30th, which was previously announced. You can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And speaking of Thanksgiving, man, do I want to get to Skyfall. It's out this Friday. It's killing me that we're not going to be reviewing it weekend of release. But we do have a few more to go here. And I am curious to see them catch up with Brosnan and to get to the two Craig. We're going to finish out this series on the Thanksgiving. For you Brits, that's the holiday at the end of November that us Yanks like to do with Turkey. But yes... This Friday, we're not doing Skyfall. We will get to it. Just bear with us for the next couple weeks. So join us Friday. Now playing will return with The World Is Not Enough. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. we barely got to know each other. You can also follow NowPlaying on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, Jams. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow.
Now playing is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. And this is Arnie, the cunning lingot. Roger Spottis' word did Turner and Hooch. <laughs> what are they thinking here? What have you got against Turner and Hooch? I like Turner and Hooch a lot. <laughs> <laughs> to be settled at another time when they make Turner and Hooch 2. Hopefully they don't make Turner and Hooch 2. I hope not. Yes. I think they already have. I think it was direct to video and it was about Hooch's kids. <laughs> I'm not going to look and nobody post about it on Facebook. <laughs> it was called Canine with Jim Belushi. Haven't you seen that? <laughs> All right, mm, let's do this. Mm. Okay, <laughs> it's odd jobs on the call. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know I'm wearing a bowler? This character is not Steve Jobs or who's the dead guy? Bill Gates or any of those people. Bill Gates is not dead. Oh, you're right. No, yeah. Yeah, Steve Jobs is the dead one. Yes. Well, yeah, Steve Jobs is just like a hermit now or something. He just like gives to charity or something. No, Steve Jobs is dead. Bill Gates is the hermit who gives billions to charity. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. Now I'm just saying yeah. the wrong thing. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late in the evening for me to get facts right. But I know what I mean. And, yes. I, I know where you're going with this. Go on. Yes. <laughs> I agree with Arnie completely. The scenes with Paris, even though the script and the performances may not hold it up, what's there is the strongest <laughs> stuff in the movie for character. I think the scene with Vincent Scavelli works completely. I think Brosnan's great in that scene. I, think I agree, Brock, great. your entire statement there. I agree with Stuart's laughter. The The acting sucked and the script's terrible, but it was great. <laughs> I think it's great except for the performance and the writing. <laughs> of, of, of Terry Hatcher is what I was going with. Not oh, I know. Yeah, she's got boobs. I got that. Yeah, that's about it. 